Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb & Pitts Insurance and DataFacts. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb Pitts Insurance and DataFacts. We have a legendary Changemakers podcast for you on this round. We have Bill Morris, who actually, his autobiography is on sale now. His book just came out. It's Bill Morris, A Legendary Life. It documents uh, Bill Morris's life of public service as the sheriff of Shelby County, Tennessee, most known for taking uh, James Earl Ray into custody. Also, too, the book documents his four consecutive terms as mayor of Shelby County, his friendship with Elvis Presley, his devotion to promoting the Memphis area globally, and his devotion to his family. So we have the legendary Bill Morris. And if you live here in Shelby County or, or Memphis area, you know the name Bill Morris. You probably drive on him. You, you <laughs> he, he, he is a famous man. So Bill Morris, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm very careful when I ride on the Bill Morris Parkway. <laughs> Because I think it's an Audubon racetrack. So I, you know, at my age, I have to be very careful about what's around me. But thank you for having me. Absolutely. You are, uh, like I said, a legacy in this area for sure. Um, let's start because the book just came out. We want to definitely dive into that and some of the stories from the book. Um, but, but talk a little about you had a, a difficult childhood, but that really kind of paved the way for you, your vision. Um, it, it, it really created kind of an opportunity for you from a confidence standpoint, but also too from a trajectory. Give us a little bit of that kind of backstory, if you will, of growing up. Well, I, you know, I, I'm quick to point out that I was not unique in being born into uh, a poverty environment during the Depression in the early 30s. Uh, a big percentage of the rural South, particularly, uh, there was uh, no economic opportunity, basically. It was non-existent. It was, it was a time when the Depression, small towns particularly, that had survived on a little bit of farming, maybe a little bit of dairy and, and uh, sawmills and what have you. Uh, during those times, there was no money and no jobs and certainly no welfare system. And so those who were uneducated, like my family was, they, they grade school only, sharecropping, farming, what have you. They had children, but they couldn't do an awful lot for their children. But we were not unique uh, in that most, a lot of people, in small town Mississippi, particularly where I grew up, they had the same situation. My family ultimately, and when the war came along, decided to move uh, out of the city to Mobile, Alabama, where there was work going on, building ships, getting ready for the war, and so forth. And so they got a they got a glimpse of how it can be better by moving to where the economy is, as opposed to staying and trying to weather. Uh, a storm that was not going to go away anytime soon. And so anyway, with that happening, uh, and we'll go into all the details from Mobile and back and so forth, but when I was about 14, my family had moved back to Mississippi. And by that time, I was pretty well uh, determined that, you know, the future had to depend on me. It was to finish uh, high school and junior college on my own there. Yeah. And then I took the Greyhound bus and came west to Memphis, Tennessee to go to school and get a job, and the rest is history. 
talk about when the idea of public service uh, from you know Shelby County Sheriff and just kind of stepping into that line, when did that get into your mind of, hey, I want to do something big, but, but around giving back and pouring into my community with a public service, a leadership role in a public service? I have to tell you, I never had a vision toward doing something big. Uh, I just was had a vision of doing something. And I worked for a company that uh, encouraged me to join a very active organization called the Junior Chamber of Commerce, the JCs, at that time in 1958, in September, and Dece- November, December of 1958, we had about 700 young men, 21 to 35, who joined an organization whose entire purpose was allowing you to be involved in initiatives that where you could learn without being concerned whether you won or didn't win. Uh, it was doing public service. We were interested in projects having to do with bicycle safety and mental health issues and what have you, large project, numbers of projects. And it was a political uh, energizing mindset that we've created. And because John Kennedy, who I might add, was very much in the minds of people about that time when he says, it is your responsibility. Get engaged, be active, make the changes necessary, go out and be involved. Because everyone has the opportunity and responsibility to take a part of the responsibility of where they live, their society. And with that, we became engaged. Our creed in the JCs really suited me fine. It said, we believe that faith in God gives meaning and purpose to human life and that the brotherhood of man transcends the sovereignty of nations. And economic justice can best be won by free men through free enterprise. And mainly, that government should be of laws and not of the people. Those are the lines of a creed that those seven and 800 members from year to year really believed in. We spoke to that and how we felt politically. And that's how we looked at people who ran for office. Do they? Are, are they represented by what we right. believe in? So anyway, we, Jack Morris, who well-known in this city, but Jack and I were good friends, and I was president of that organization in 1961, and, and uh, we decided to go down and visit the sheriff at that time. We had no interest in politics, particularly at that time, but we wanted to be engaged in what politicians were doing. We really thought everybody should step in and help the sheriff with the problems he had with traffic safety and drunken driving and all of that. And we were into that at that point. So we'd go down and we'd visit. And the sheriff was an old line law, law enforcement guy. Matter of fact, grew up through the Memphis Police Department and became engaged in politics, ran for sheriff and was elected. And so we'd go down to visit. We explained what we wanted to do, we wanted to help. And we were basically just sort of patted on the head and said, thank you boys for coming by, but we've got this thing under control. And I uh, said, as long as I make cars and make whiskey, said, they're going to kill themselves. So, yeah, there you go. And so well, we left feeling a little put out. He did give us a, a special deputy badge, you know. For, I, was, I was probably 28 at that point, and Jack was 29. And, oh, you know, young guys, active just full of energy. So we left and for the next year or so, it sort of sort of fretted about the way we were sort of just put down. So in an afternoon after work one, one day, uh, we decided 
well, why don't we just take a public stand on this issue of, of the corruption in the Sheriff's Department, what was going on was not desirable, it's all in the news, and special interest, people hired because of some friend asked me, you know, it was not a professional department. And so we had a reporter by the name of Paul Vanderwood, worked for the press center, and he was also a JC, and in that conversation we began to look at all the things that we could identify as being negative for the community. And so here again, John Kennedy said, if you see a negative that you think should be changed, change it, speak out. So I was sort of selected uh, by, by drawing a short straws, and uh, really because Jack Marsh should have been the candidate because he had been a legislator, and, and I was, had a, such an inferiority inferior complex, I was afraid to stand up and speak. Uh, and it, it was just, I was traumatized. So they chose you. Huh? <laughs> said, so they chose you. <laughs> so they chose me. And I said, oh my God, I'll do this. My wife almost had a heart attack when I told her I was going to run for sheriff. She said, you can't spell sheriff. So you know, laughingly. And uh, the company I worked for previously, Tupin Company, had asked me to come back that company. I had left for a couple of years and become vice president of, of, of a large printing company because that was my business. I was a German printer from Mississippi and so forth. And I liked it. It was a good profession. And I told them that I would, but I had been, uh, I had agreed on running for sheriff long enough for us to get our message uh, out about what we thought should be done and changing the direction of law enforcement. And they agreed that I could come to work. That was in 1964. I could come to work August the 5th, one day after the election. Uh, lo and behold, we went on a campaign, and the local uh, chief director of fire and police, Claude Armour, who had been a hand-picked appointee, uh, so to speak, from Mr. Crump, E.H. Crump, the D-Boss Crump back then. And, uh, and uh, he said he thought I was right by speaking out, uh, and even among his peers. So he decided to support me. Wow. He was a powerful man. He was recognized by J. Edgar Hoover as being one of the top people in the country that was that was able to talk to the community and was, was respected. And with that and a few other incidents that took place, the momentum really picked up. I was the first person, I was 31 years of age, and I had no law enforcement experience, but I did have three several points. One was that as a business person, the Sheriff's Department should be operated like a business. Secondly, they need to elect someone who would not have debts to the people presently working in the Sheriff's Department so you can make free decisions without any fear of any problem from it. And so people began to like that dialogue. And then I began to pinpoint the issues of, of the misuse of squad cars and and the special privileges for friends who were in jail, such as having food brought in from restaurants and so forth. And, uh, and after a while, the press assembly picked up on this and headlines started popping all over the place. And, and we, we ran into a lot of trouble with the people who were present in the department. And, uh, and the more they thought about what we heard, what we said, they took exception to that and tore up the signs and, and that type of thing. But on election day, I won handily and did not expect to win. And uh, uh, I, was, I was at a point, not only was I elected sheriff and never been there, 
the Civil Rights Act had been passed that year, and the first duty that I was to perform was to introduce civil rights to the Sheriff's Department. They had like deputies who could not arrest white people, uh, and it ran colored water, toilet facilities, and all it goes with a segregated society. And so I had that on the table day one. And you walk in with no experience, and you have no. to you have to prove, you have to learn, and you have a whole new totally, yeah, totally. Wow. But it was the spirit of the thing, you know. I was ready to go. These young people, that I mean, we this was basically a JC project. Uh, it wasn't a Bill Marsh project. Right. It was a. I was just having to be an agent of that. Of well, and I think that's an important piece of this is you have a support network in place, right. and to your point, you have the desire and the will and the hunger to want to make things better, and so that's going to push you to make sure that you can you can do the job right. And and a part of my first term is a two year term, Jeremy. The uh, my thought was we have to get the public involved. We have to open the sheriff's department so in the light of the day, so to speak, so they can see what's going on. So I began programs of starting Boy Scout Explorer posts in the Sheriff's Department. With David is working with them. Uh, I started a reserve program, which is still in existence, of people wearing a uniform and being trained and serving for free. Uh, and then I invited the ministers and the business leaders to come in and ride squad cars on the weekends to see how we were doing. ACLU, always a conflict before with uh, whether or not law enforcement was trying to hide what they were doing. I invited them in. As a matter of fact, the first murder case that we had, uh, I had asked them to come in and stay with us from can to can till that thing was over with. Found the body, how it was handled, how the arrest was made, how the trial went, how the incarceration went, all of that. And by the end of the first year, we had so many people who had volunteered, so many organizations involved in the Sheriff's Department, we, we went by the platform 80% prevention and 20% enforcement. And we had a lot to do. We had the first term, by the end of the first term, two-year term, we had reduced the juvenile court crime rate to 15%, which was lowest ever recorded wow. before or since, basically. But in, at the end of the first year, I said, we had a report card we needed to address. And Dr. Paul Call, who was a minister of First Baptist Church, reminded me, if you better do what we tell you to do, or you told me you were going to do, we'll, we'll be just as bad taking you out as we were putting you in. And so we had a public hearing, so to speak, at uh, uh, Clearproof. 700 people show up. And I, get it, man, I give a report, here's what we said we'd do, and this is what we did, and this is what we've done. And the next time it came around for election for the first time ever in the history, I had no opponent. And it told me that people want transparency. And then in the process of the civil rights, uh, I've always been proud of the fact I came from the small town uh, where poor people were all one people, black, white, whatever. So we were all one people. Going back full circle, the fact that, to, to your point, being poor knows no color. Right. It, it knows no color of skin. And so being able to, to understand the, the plight, the burden, the, the difficulties, the challenges firsthand, but also, too, to your point, not seeing skin color, just seeing hope and opportunities, and the fact that we can all work together creates the environment where people want to come together and work together and help our city. That is unquestionably correct, and, and I found that evidence more and more and more as I went through the stages yeah. of political life. 
and then when I, I lost an election uh, for the city mayor, and looking at how the evaluation took place, Memphis was either liberal or conservative. I was the middle of the road. I was a moderate. It's guys like Mike Cody and Jeff Sanford, we were all moderates. So some good people were left on the side of the road politically because they could not get elected for unless they changed uh, their value in terms in terms of perspective. In those days, Jeremy, we didn't have a lot of television and a lot of media coverage. It was like you had the newspapers and you had backyard coke parties and you had shaking hands at factories that when shift changes, no, you had you came face to face with people. Yeah, all and face you look to face squared in, If you look a person square in the eye and you say, "This is what I believe," in, Mr. 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 Park, I, I would really appreciate you giving me a shot because I think this can be better. Because I'm going to be there, and this is how I feel, and this is my philosophy. Will you help me? And having said that, it worked out fine, and um, and I loved it. I'd go into bowling alleys at 12 o'clock at night. You know, people thought I was crazy, but that I didn't have money for television and if you had television I just had to go see people we had no money to run I had, when I left Memphis State I didn't know 50 people in Memphis once the army came back thank you for listening to our change makers podcast city current is a catalyst of over a hundred partners joining forces and funds to power the good through free events positive media and philanthropy if you like our efforts and you're looking to power the good with us follow us on social media at city current and check out our website at citycurrent.com please subscribe rate and review our podcast wherever you listen and if you know a change maker please reach out and let us know so we can consider them for a future show the change makers podcast is brought to you by data facts data facts is a national provider of trusted background screening products such as criminal searches drug screening employment and education verifications and post-hire monitoring to employers of all sizes DataFacts is one of the few background screeners that holds the stringent National Association of Professional Background Screeners Accreditation. They're certified by the WBENC as a 100% woman-owned business, and in 2018, they were ranked by HRO Today's Baker's Dozen Customer Satisfaction Ratings as one of the top background screeners in the nation. You are in good hands with DataFacts. Visit DataFacts.com to learn more and make sure to mention the Changemakers podcast. And now, back to the show. Well, let's bounce because I want to cover some historical pieces, I think, just because you've been such a huge part of the history of Memphis. Um, talk about Martin Luther King Jr., the assassination. Um, you play a very, very important role in that. I'll kind of leave that there. I'll let you kind of share the story, but but share your side of the story. Well, you probably have read or at least know about the fact that we had when the Civil Rights Act passed. Uh, in New York and different places, public works employees began to have their representatives evaluate opportunities of changing circumstances, working conditions, salaries, benefits, and all of that. Mayors, mayors, and others didn't res- did not respond to the individual plight of certain communities. Unlike the sheriff's department where I was, I began to integrate all of our, our activities in the black community. But the labor situation got worse and worse and worse. And uh, the labor strike, police departments went on strike, uh, the sanitation department, you know, then went on strike. And all this built up to uh, having all of the problems we had. And I, I point this out uh, whenever I have the opportunity. Memphis was fortunate in that, in one sense, when Martin Luther King was killed, 
Memphis was already prepared for all the chaos that was going on. And the state, uh, the Highway Patrol, the National Guard, Memphis Police Department, all of the agencies were consolidated with it and created, we created a, a strategy on how to deal with the problems. And uh, we didn't know that Martin Luther King was going to get killed, but we did know there were going to be protests, there could be violence, and we've seen that in cities all over the country, uh, Chicago and Los Angeles and New York. And, uh, and this is breaking out all over. And if you knew anything about human nature, you know this this is going to hit the southern cities as well. With that in mind, when Martin Luther King was killed, uh, we were prepared. Claude uh, Armour, I mentioned earlier to you, he was now working for the governor, and we had uh, developed a, a, a strategy that we were prepared for whatever. And we had units uh, of enforcement people, and they ran in uh, three-part units three vehicles, trucks, open trucks. And uh, all the agencies were involved. And it, and it affected what James Earl Ray did. When James Earl Ray shot Martin Luther King out the window from Main Street. Uh, he came running down, and but it was the coffee break time for this one of these units. And there's a fire station next door. They all went there which is direct across from the, the Rain Motel, to have coffee. Well, James Earl Ray bounces out with his suitcase and his rifle, and he's going to get in his nice, I mean, get in his uh, uh, Ford, little Ford, and he was going to cut out of town. Well, here was 150, 60 policemen, uh, all of a sudden screaming, you know, he thought they were looking for him. They didn't know exactly that this was what was happening. I show up a few minutes later, and the gun and the, and the suitcase was there, and he, I'm hearing all this stuff about uh, the car, the white car and what have you. But uh, he was frightened by that. Uh, he thought he was just going to be inundated with 40, 50 policemen. On it, an hour earlier, it would have been nothing going on, and uh, he could have taken the gun and suitcase, and he would have, would not have left all those clues. But uh, anyway, the, the violence, we got it under control like in, in just a few hours uh, because we had a curfew and we had all these agencies in place and we had the cooperation. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I brought in 75 Arkansas Highway patrolmen, big guys, uh, met them on the bridge and, and, and uh, uh, four of them in as a law enforcement officer. And we did the same thing with uh, one representative on every fire truck so they could carry a rifle and protect themselves when they were trying to go around the city trying to put out fires. And uh, I was active in, on, in the community, so was Claude Armin, Frank Holloman, J.C. McDonald, all the people in law enforcement. And, uh, and it was on the scene, seeing and participating. And I think, I think the city felt comfortable because uh, the flame went out pretty quickly in terms yeah. of violence. As soon as Martin Luther King was killed, though, cities all over America uh, went chaotic. I mean, it went uh, like crazy. And a lot of violence, stores destroyed and all of that. And we had some of that, but nothing compared to Watts and some of these other places, major cities, because I felt like we were prepared. 
talk about on your end um, maybe a proud moment or something, you know, when you look at that and how that was handled, but ultimately your, your time, your tenure with Shelby County Sheriff's Office, give us kind of one thing that puts a smile on your face with your tenure there. I have to tell you, the, uh, the fact that uh, me personally, I was selected as lawman and national lawman of the year, da 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 da. But what was really important was uh, the department was recognized as one of the top ten departments in the country, and was celebrated. That was celebrated by the Qantas Club nationally and so forth. And so it spoke well of the teamwork, and that was spelled out in all the awards and recognitions that we had professionalized the department and. I think that the men and women at the department had a great sense of pride that we, they had gotten the salaries up and they had good uniforms, they looked nice, uh, they, the, the physical well-being, you know, we had programs, we don't need people who don't look like they're capable of, of doing the job. And so a, a, a weight loss pro- program started immediately after I went into the office, getting people to respond. And they said, well, their uniforms, they, they didn't get any uniform allowance, maybe one uniform a year. And so we changed all of that. But the main thing we did, we hired more people uh, that wanted to be professional, and uh, we raised the salaries, men and women, equal pay for equal job, and that was unheard of as well. And then uh, at the end of the day, and I think you can read on Facebook or anywhere else, the people who that were there, uh, they applaud the leadership, not necessarily that they love me that much because I was a tough leader, I was a tough taskmaster. And, uh, but I, my job was not to, to make everybody in that department friends, but make them effective. And have the type of responsibility that says, community first, citizens first. And I have to tell you on, on, the, on that line, I think every day about how we have lost in our Congress. We elect good people who get to be non-people. They get to be an item for the party, uh, Democratic Party, Republican Party, raising money all the time. And I guess there's no must not be much time for them to respond to local constituency needs because they vote on party lines. Our needs are not necessarily party needs. It is human needs human consideration, uh, human elevation in terms of standards of living and understanding. Uh, also, the citizens that I know in this city would like to have a better understanding and to a point where they would believe in the people that represent us. I get to the, the point I get terribly frustrated when I see uh, uh, people that can go to Congress and next before you know what what happens, they get million dollar funds. And you wonder where those funds are coming from, what they're about. I'm not putting anybody down for it, I'm just saying that seems to be uh, the, the trend these days. Everybody's out to raise money for a party this party. And on that line, I will tell you, the most advisive thing that ever happened to this city, in my mind, was when we changed local government officials, elections to partisan elections, judges included. It's in, unconscionable, it's inconceivable that, uh, that a judge should have to be a Democrat or Republican in order to render the law. Law should stand for itself, and so should the person uh, passing judgment. And so 
I think we had enough problem being divided black and white. But then we, then we came and identified a division bipartisan. And for the most part, true moderate, true Democrats, the few whites that were by that time began to be associated with the black community and that made up the Democratic Party. And then you had the others of the Republican Party. And we're divided, I mean, even in our churches. If you're a Republican or Democrat, it's a different relationship uh, because of all the division in Washington and even now locally um, because we get into real scramble. And I never ran as a partisan, uh, as sheriff or mayor. And consequently, I had all of the elections, I had up to 88% of the votes in Memphis and Shelby County. And that was a, that was a big a black and white and liberal conservative and what have you. It was about the service and relationship that I had with the people. And now, uh, if you are a Republican or Democrat, you're treated differently. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the label Democrat or Republican automatically, it polarizes. So let, let's go to your term with uh, Shelby County Mayor. Talk about from, from that vantage point, I, I think, you know, to me, it does go back to relationships and that has to transcend. But how, is there a way we can move away from the labels? Is there a way we can um, go and, and create the relationships to where we can transcend this and, and come together and heal? I mean, give us your perspective putting on the Shelby County mayor hat. I'm going to give an example. Lamar Alexander was elected governor at the same time I was elected mayor. And we met shortly thereafter because we had a job to do, and that was to get a space for FedEx to expand with the national and getting the use of the National Guard property at the airport. We met, and that issue came up, and and we began to work on that and solved the problem. We did we didn't check to see if it was Republican or Democrat or whatever, but it was an issue. It's an economic issue. It was a growth issue for Memphis and Shelby County. But Lamar made a statement to me uh, as he went about his business of being governor and I was going to be mayor. Uh, he said, I'm not coming. I'm not going to come to Memphis and tell you guys what to do in Memphis and Shelby County. But I'll tell you, if you can get together and determine what you want to do for the city, I'll do my best to help you achieve your goals. And with that, Ron Terry and a group of businessmen we came up with what we call the Jobs Conference. The Jobs Conference was designed for input from every community and methods, black, white, poor, rich. And this went on for weeks. At the end of the day, it was educating people of what our assets were, the river and those kinds of things. That was one side. The other thing was, what are your concerns in, in South Memphis and North Memphis and so on and so forth. And those were... Uh, uh, they dealt with it, put, them on, put that on paper. It didn't say Republican and Democrat. Yeah. That was the first one of those kinds of events that I had ever seen. But it was incredibly successful. But out of that, though, came that we have, to, we have to determine what is the best opportunity for us to succeed in Memphis. What is our strategy going to be? I went to a strategy development class in Seattle, Washington. Uh, and, and with that and others in Rose College and the business uh, jobs conference people, we determined we needed to promote the river. We needed to promote the fact we have more railroads and a great airport. We should be a distribution center. We need to promote that. Then what about tourism? 
Well, we have Bill Street. What can we do about Bill Street? It was then this very archaic uh, uh, state. But then said, we need to look at ways we can improve Bill Street and attract people. We had Elvis Presley. At that time in 1978-79, he had died two years early, but he had never been recognized as much as he needed to be recognized then because people all over the world knew who Elvis Presley was, and he was an asset to us. We needed to capitalize on that. And we began to do that. And uh, and so doing, we began to attract people into Memphis. Mm -hmm. And so that became an industry that's been very profitable for Memphis, and we need to continue to do just, just exactly that. That's good money. It don't take a lot of money to sell reputation and music and fun. Uh, we didn't have the... Uh, the, the uh, was, as we used to say, we didn't have the surf and the slopes and the slot machines, but we had Bill Street. We had an opportunity to sell Elvis Presley and, and blues and all of that. Memphis and May came along a little earlier. Lyman Aldridge and a bunch of guys started Memphis and May. Well, Memphis and May, along with the Jobs Conference and an active Chamber of Commerce and a progressive county mayor, who didn't distinguish between city and county because the city was also in the county. And a lot of people knew, never knew that until I was elected. But I told them, Memphis, you are Shelby Countyans, and you are part of my constituency, and you elected me to be your mayor. Yeah. And that was a different set of... So I, I took on the uh, role of saying, uh, Memphis is the largest city in my county. A lot of people thought that was a hoot because Typically in the past, you dealt well something way out here somewhere that you don't recognize. But the schools were a big part of Shelby County funding. And medical care, the med, hospitals, care, all that, libraries, that was a part of Shelby County for everybody. But then we but we went together then with the jobs conference and we began to say, we've got to get out of we must go beyond the boundaries of the river in Tennessee and even the country. And see if we started we became a part of the Southeast USA Japan Association. We became a part of the Southeast USA Korea Association, along with seven states in the South. And I took an equal position with all this government. I, I, I assumed the role of being a part of that marketing in Japan and wherever we went. And uh, as of now, we have over 175 Japanese companies in Tennessee. And it didn't happen by accident. We went to sell Tennessee uh, as a great opportunity to have a business and it's worked well. The joy that I've had in all of that is working with people like Lamar Alexander who did the forward in this book and who did never I suspect got credit for the role that he played and that's unfortunate. I hope some people would take to heart that all of us are sort of like the turtle sitting on the fence post he didn't get there by himself. Right. And <laughs> Somebody that, got him up there. He, I mean, exactly. And we all need to recognize none of us are really unto ourselves all, all that important. But together, collectively, we're working with other people of like minds. And a common goal is more achievable. And what you're doing, Jeremy, uh, is an incredible new frontier that has been forgotten for about 25 years or 30 years uh, because... A lot of people have abdicated to uh, the federal bureaucracies, allowing them to come in and, and just spotting here and there, 
events that they claim we're dealing with this issue and that issue, uh, that, that doesn't get the job done. Until we elevate our own mindset in Memphis, every citizen, yeah. we need to get back to becoming engaged with organizations and issues uh, because the door's always open. People might be afraid to volunteer, but hey, if it's going on, knock on the door and tell you know, I want to get, I'm going to be involved in it. People have gotten involved with the zoo, the airport, and all these other issues, and be a part of the joy of making something happen because it's your town. Make the most of it. Well, I mean, that's that's your career right there. I mean, when you look at you know, stepping up and even having the support network, but still stepping up and saying, hey, something needs to be done about Shelby County Sheriff's Office. And next thing you know, exactly. that puts in place your whole career trajectory. Give us one fun moment from Elvis. So give us a fun Elvis story. Okay. Obviously, you were friends with him, good friends with him. Right. Such good friends that he gave you a car. I, he did give me a car, <laughs> actually. Well, and that was not necessarily a fun thing, but uh, he did. And I kept. I was not in the office, by the way, when he gave me the car. But uh, he came from Tupelo, East Tupelo, and I came from a distance, a place nearby. My grandmother, as a matter of fact, lived like two blocks from where he grew up. And it's you know at that time that was a, it was a he lived in a one bedroom. Uh, shotgun house, as did everybody else. And, and a matter of fact, when I was 16 years old, uh, I met a girl who lived next door to Elvis when he was younger than me, three or four years younger. And and, and I, I hitched a ride from Fulton, where I was growing up, to go see that gal. And, uh, and so I didn't know him at that point. But Elvis said, let's go down, let's go to Tupelo. I want to see, yeah. I'm, the sheriff was a friend of mine. I said, I'm going to go down and meet the sheriff. I'd like to have his badge from him, my Lee County, and what have you. So let's take the back roads. So we go the back roads down through Holly Springs and Taco Polo and back through there, little country town. So we had a carload of people, and we stopped off at a little country store. And then you walk in the stores, a wooden floor, you know, one person in the store. A guy had on overalls and had a, had a, a fan going. And he had one of these old Coke boxes where you lift, you know, the deal and take the Coke out and pop it. And we did that. And Elvis typically had on this weird-looking stuff, you know, it's a, it's a lot of people, high collars and fur collars and all that kind of stuff. So we'd go in, and uh, Red West and Lamar Walk, uh, Lamar Fike and, and some of the other guys with us. And so it was real quiet. And the old man looking over his glasses and checking us out. It, it looked like he was thinking about something. So somebody said, do you recognize any of these people? And he said, uh, mm, ain't that Bill Marks? <laughs> so, so, Elvis told that story forever. That's that, hilarious. But I'm going to have to add the side note to that. We'd go and we get to where he lived. And uh, I said, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go up and say my grandmother is real critically ill. He said, won't I go with you? I remember her. So he and I go up to my grandmother's house. She's on the hospital bed, you know, with the rail around and all that kind of stuff. And so we go in and immediately she said, hi, Evis. You know how old people talk. Hi, Evis, how you? Well, he talked to her and, and they had a nice dialogue and, and uh, I spoke, of course, that's my grandmother. That night, and he tells this story, my grandmother's daughter lived there with her, said, after Buddy left, 
He said, it, my grandmother said, I sure did enjoy seeing Elvis, but who was that man with him? <laughs> so, so, so it worked two ways. You say you had to turn him out. <laughs> sometimes you're recognized over Elvis, oh, yeah. sometimes well, not. See, that guy probably watched local TV down there and 50 miles down that way, but that was, that was hilarious. <laughs> Well, give us, you know, as you reflect, especially on the opportunity of the book to, to really uh, share the stories, paint the pictures. But when you look at, you know, your legacy here in Shelby County in the Mid-South and in your career, give us, you know, just what kind of puts a smile on your face when you step back and you have a chance to look over it. Uh, give us one thing that, that really makes you happy. What makes me happy is that my family, I have three sons, I have four children, nine grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, pictures in the back. And I, I go by the line, I said, you can live a rich life without riches. If I worked on St. Jude, you can put that in your hip pocket and that's in the bank. You work with the University of Memphis and all the projects out there, the University of Sports and raising money. And I was a part of the, starting the ambassador organization, raised lots of money. Raised lots of money for St. Jude over the years. As a matter of fact, I was a ticket sales chairman for the very first event that we had in Memphis, Danny Thomas and I was president of JC. So I've been involved, still on the advisory board. That was when I was 28, and that's been a long time ago. And so it's soon be 60 years. I'm still, I traveled with Danny. I went to his funeral. I helped seat the presence at his funeral. That was a dynamic thing. I'm sitting in an office with, uh, on a committee in the White House appointed by Ronald Reagan and him sitting across from me and I'm sitting there thinking how in the devil did this kid from Fulton, Mississippi coming from that environment somehow or the other somebody pushed him along and I'm sitting here with a man I have the greatest respect for of any man on earth that I know and that's Ronald Reagan and he was and I have a picture in this book of mm -hmm. being in that committee those those kinds of things along with the fact that my family uh, has, I think, enjoyed the fact that we have been accepted in Memphis, non-Memphian. The door's open, and I would challenge and say this to anybody who would be willing to listen to me today. You can be as much a part of Memphis as anybody who called themselves Memphian. You're a Memphian the day you sit inside the city and you say, I want to live here, I want to be part of this, I want to be in school here, I want to be a part of the solution to the problem. All of that that Amen. comes that comes with the constitutional liability, the humanity that we have around us is a direct result of what we're willing to do to make it. Amen to that. I agree 100%. I mean, I think, you know, if and I, I've said this over and over until I'm blue in the face too, is there's no greater city. Um, if you want to make a difference, you can make a difference here. The connectivity, the ability to create change, and to see it firsthand, to see your impact, becomes contagious. And I mean, I agree 100% is you come here with an open heart and open arms, and this city will open up to you. Talk about, you know, on your end to that regard, because I think it is one of those where you yourself are a great example of someone who you don't have to come from means to create opportunities. Speak a little bit on that regard of just, you know, what it took for you, sacrifice, your mindset, to, to overcome that, to be able to create these opportunities. But it wasn't about monetary gain. It was about creating opportunities for others. And you said it all throughout the interview is it's, it was 
others helping you and you helping others that created opportunities that weren't about the money but were about the impact. Totally about impact. Uh, several lines, building and but, hey, being rid of uh, that terrible thing called inferiority complex. Never got rid of it, totally. But I worked on it, still work on it every day. And when I evaluate what has happened in my life, the best decision I ever made was I'd rather be involved in making things better than making a product and selling it for product. I've worked in business. I'm successful in business. I had a real estate company, consulting business. I love business, but I made enough money to convince me that my time was more valuable, and the, like for example, the Boy Scouts of America. I was the only guy who was ever elected president's council here three times. Head of the Kentucky, Tennessee Boy Scouts of America on the regional board. Head of the National Cub Scouting Committee, and the Relations Committee with Senator Luger, uh, uh, people like that. So that's it. I mean, that's awesome. And I'm a silver beaver, silver antelope, won all the awards, as uh, I did in every organization I ever attended. I was recognized. And that was enriching. It was really, and it even goes on to challenge you to do more in those areas of common need. So, what uh, what do you like to do to relax? Uh, I like to play golf. Uh, I like to read. I just got back from a cruise, and I had three books that had been on my shelf for a while. I read all three, and I'm, my, I have a new goal. I'm, I'm going to try to read one book a week and pass it on. Uh, for at least a year, I have large numbers of books. Uh, Louis Lamour, you know, ever did you ever hear of Louis Lamour? Uh, well, uh, and, but I have, I have some, uh, James Patterson, uh, those uh, those kind of books, and then uh, I, I've always read self-help books. I've all read, always read um, uh, people who write books about uh, a book of the Bible or their interpretation and what have you. But I have a farm. Uh, place and out the country and we had fish and hunt and uh, I've had it for 50 years and have a place there for every one of my children to have a house a cottage on five, about 500 acres out near Chickasaw State Park but it's a part of what happened to me when I was a kid we didn't have a home we only stayed in one house long enough for the rent to come due and maybe make one more pay and we're going to the next shack and shack and shack 15, 16 times uh, in my early youth. So I said, when I bought this place 50 years ago, I'm gonna have it so that I have enough room. Anyone I love and any of my family, if they ever get to where they can't make it, there's a place for them and they can come there and they have they will have a place to go, be right. comfortable, not, not be out on the cold, cold world. And it's been that way, and I still have it that way. And all, all my kids and all my grandkids and everybody knows this is our place. And it's, uh, it's there for the use for everyone in my family. So what do you hope your legacy is when, when you look at how others think of you, especially with your time in the public office? What do you hope that um, your legacy is? I hope my legacy is simple this. He tried to make the world better uh, and, and, and hold no... Uh, bad thoughts about the mistakes I made. No, I did what I did in total best interest, knowing that I, I'm human. And uh, 
I love my family and I love my church. In the middle of all of that, there's still room for making errors. The book, again, is Bill Morris, A Legendary Life. It's available. uh, You can get it on Amazon.com here locally in the Memphis area. You've got Novel Bookstore. Um, I know that you're doing a lot of speaking now, and you're out promoting the book, obviously, but we definitely encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the book. And uh, where else should we go? Is there anywhere else people need to go to stay in touch with you to get the book? Well, the, bill, the book is available on BillMarsBook.com, written to, for enjoyment, but maybe but to create perspectives of how what's happened in the last 60 years in Memphis, how we got here, and what our needs how our needs might be met today if we follow some of the same rules back then, which you're trying to advocate in, in a very wonderful way. Ladies and gentlemen, he is a change maker. Bill Morris, once again, the book is Bill Morris, A Legendary Life, BillMorrisBook.com, Amazon.com, here locally, Novel Bookstore. Uh, so definitely make sure and, and get your copy. But Bill Morris, thank you for all you do, all you've done, all you continue to do um, for being a change maker. Greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipsmith Pitts Insurance and Data Facts. To learn more about our guests and to share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com and follow us on social media using at CityCurrent. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now, think big, start small, and act now. Be a changemaker.